Hi, everyone. You're listening to Who I Met Today, and I'm your host, Pam Lamp. I'm all about doing one tiny new thing every single day. And on this podcast, I invite you to come along with me and discover something new through conversations with people from all walks of life. I hope you enjoy listening to these interviews and exploring new territory with me. For more people stories and episodes, please visit my website, whoimettoday.com. My guest today is Dr. Ravi Goel. Dr. Goal is a spokesperson for the American Academy of Ophthalmology and a comprehensive ophthalmologist and cataract surgeon at Regional Eye Associates in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. He's here today to discuss cataracts, an eye issue almost every single one of us will face. I can't wait to learn all about them. Hi, Dr. Goal. Thank you for being here today. Pleasure to be here with you. Thank you for, thank you for the invitation. Well, I had a little surprise at my recent eye exam. My vision had been a bit off. I didn't feel like I was seeing as well. I just figured I needed a stronger prescription. As it turns out, my cataracts have advanced and I no longer, even with a prescription, can see 2020. I don't need surgery yet, but I will. And I thank you very much for being here today to shed some light on an eye issue that I'm guessing most of us will deal with as we get older. So... First of all, can you tell us what a cataract is? Pam, thank you for the, for the great question. I, and it's my pleasure to be here. A cataract is basically a clouding which occurs in the natural lens of the eye. So if you think about your eye as being an optical system, and you think about, you know, back when we were kids, I remember sending film out to York uh, Labs in West Virginia to process film, and, we, and they'd send the prints back. But basically, if you think about the eye as being an optical system, you have to have a clear part of the front of the eye called the cornea. Somebody has the pupil. Behind that sits the natural lens of the eye, which becomes a cataract. Light goes through those structures, hits the retina, and then gets processed by the optic nerve to the brain. So if you could think of the, about the, the natural lens of the eye as almost being like a windshield, not, not a windshield, but being sort of the substance that helps to bend light and helps it, helps it to process properly on the retina. So a cataract is a cloudiness which occurs in the natural lens of the eye. And I often tell patients that you can think about a cataract or think about the natural lens of the eye the way you would think about a peanut M&M. And you know what a peanut M&M is, right? Oh, I've eaten a few in my time. Absolutely. So if you think about a peanut M&M, you have the peanut, the chocolate, and the shell. And imagine all three of those layers being clear, a clear protein throughout your entire life. That's the typical lens in a patient. As you get older, 100% eventually will get cloudiness of the substance of the lens of the eye. So the peanut of the M&M, that's the nucleus. The chocolate of the M&M, that's something called the cortex. And sort of the shell of the M&M is is the shell of, of uh, of the natural lens of the eye. So you can actually get cloudiness of any of those three structures, which can affect your daily vision and affect your activities of daily living and affect your quality of life. Now, do I hear you saying that it's inevitable we're all going to get them? It is inevitable that we're all going to get cataracts. It's not inevitable that we're all going to need surgery, though. Okay. So typically, when I, when I have patients, I have many patients in the situations which you described, and they say to me, you know, doctor, when do I need cataract surgery? I say, look, I look at three simple criteria before I recommend cataract surgery in a patient. Number one, 
Do you have a cataract? Is there cloudiness of the natural lens of your eye that we would qualify as being a cataract? Number two, is your vision below a certain level with or without glare? Now, there, there's that eye chart, which whenever you go, you know, the iconic eye chart was developed by Dr. By Snellen in the 1860s. The eye chart with the big E, if a patient has below a certain level of vision with or without glare, they meet the second criteria I use. The third criteria, I look at the patient, I say, look, the third criteria I, I use is, are you ready for surgery? Do you feel like your symptoms are bad enough that you need cataract surgery? And for example, looking at the cataract that you have, I'll say to a patient, if you were a truck driver, I'd say, yes, you do need cataract surgery because the type of cataract you have is causing glare, for example. Or for another patient, I'd say, you know what? Your cataract isn't that bad. You don't drive much. Your life is mostly at home. What are your hobbies? I ask them what their hobbies are. I'm like, you know what? Your cataracts actually aren't that bad for surgery right now. Let's wait. I'll see you again in six months or a year, et cetera. So cataract, modern cataract surgery has become individualized to the patient, much more so than even when I was a resident 25 years ago. Now, my reaction when my doctor told me that I was a solid stage two, and I'm going to ask you what the different stages are in a second, my reaction to her was, I don't think I'm old enough to have cataracts. And she said you can get them at any age. Yes, you can You can actually be born with cataracts. Oh, really? There's yeah, there's something called congenital cataracts, or there's something called embryonal cataracts, et cetera. So, so the, the, the typical example is, you know, you have a newborn baby and, and, and the, uh, you know, the grandparent or relative says, you know, the eyes just look a little odd. And, you know, then that, then you go to the pediatrician, they send you to a pediatric ophthalmologist. So you can get something called a, a congenital cataract and, and other conditions of, of infancy, but you can get a cataract from, you know, from infancy. You can get a cataract from trauma. You could be a soccer player or a lacrosse player or, you know, some type of ball player in your, in your teens, 20s, 30s, et cetera. And you can get a cataract from the trauma of that. You can get a cataract from diabetes. You have poorly controlled diabetes. And all you need to do is just turn on some signals in the lens. And all of a sudden, you're getting cloudiness of one or more of those layers, which I described. You can get a cataract with uh, chronic diseases. If you have something called iritis or uveitis, inflammation of the eye. So there are multiple conditions other than aging. Uh, which can cause cataracts. That's not to say that everyone needs to have cataract surgery. I think if, if every if every person who had a cataract had cataract surgery, I think we'd bankrupt the system even more than than the challenges which we face today. But I think that um, it is those three those three methods which I use to determine, generally speaking, if a patient needs cataract surgery. What are the different stages? So yeah, that's a great question, and, and I think that every surgeon has their own stage criteria. So stage one, stage two, stage three, stage four, that's all individualized really to the, to the ophthalmologist, to the cataract surgeon, and to the physician. But in my case, a patient has a stage one, I think they have an early lens changes. I'll say, you know what? It's like, it's like you're driving in a car, it's starting to snow, and you haven't turned on the windshield wiper yet. You can still see through it very fine. You're just like that little drizzle. You're seeing fine. You're, you're, you're doing great. We'll just, we'll just monitor you. Stage two is like, I, I don't know what, what criteria other ophthalmologists use. I mean, in, in general, stage two is still where they where they might meet the first criteria of having a cataract, but it's not bad enough to have cataract surgery or their visual acuity is still very good. I trained in Maryland. I live in New Jersey. I grew up in New Jersey. 
those two states have different criteria. And actually, the state of Maryland, I think you have that vision of 2040 or 2050 or worse. The state of New Jersey has to have a vision of 2040. So one, one state or another state might have different criteria to determine if a patient can drive safely. And that's often visual acuity criteria. You know, if you're, especially if you're in suburbia, it's, it's very difficult, you know, unless you use Uber all the time, it's very difficult to get around unless you drive a car. So that can be a criteria for cataract. So, so getting back to that, stage two can be, you know, mild, mild to moderate cataract, but they're still meeting their activities of daily living, et cetera. Stage three is definitely generally a, a moderate plus cataract. It sounds like that patient is, you know, we start to nudge the patient, even if they don't want to have surgery. Like, you know what? Like, I think it's going to be safer for you. If you have cataract surgery, you're less likely to fall. Cataracts play into depression, quality of life, quality of vision, et cetera. So and stage four is, you know, we need to get this. We need to, you, that's when you sort of, you're a little bit, you recommend it with a little bit more effort to say, look, I think it's safer to have cataract surgery now than it is to have it five years from now. So, um, so for example, if you have a patient who's 80 years old, and they say, you know, I don't have surgery. And then I've had this happen where a patient gets surgery at 85 or 86. It takes more effort. They have longer healing. The results are the same after a few weeks. But then the patient sits back and says, you know what, Dr. Gole, I wish I'd had cataract surgery five years earlier. So they do lose quality of life the longer they wait as you go through the stages. Do they always come in pairs? No, they don't always come in pairs. So as I, as I mentioned the trauma aspect, especially, you know, you might only have trauma, a traumatic cataract in one eye. That's not as, that's not as sure. common. But generally, young people will surprise you where they, where they, where they just, you just, you go to those three layers I mentioned, which is the, uh, you know, the three layers of the M&M, the, the nucleus, the cortex, and the shell. I've seen patients who have a clear lens in one eye and they have, you know, a moderate to advanced cataract in the other eye. You know, there's really, there, it can be, you know, it can be, without explanation, and you could say just completely coincidental. Generally, in older patients after a certain age, and this is anecdotal, the cataracts will be similar. But often the case is, I think in my own practice, 30 or 40% will say, you know what, the cataracts are the exact same size in terms of the color and the thickness and the cloudiness of the cataract. And oftentimes there is asymmetry and there's just sort of happens, it can happen that way. Before we talk about the surgery, I just have another quick question. Do you only go in once or like if a teenager has a cataract and you do surgery on it, might you go back when that teenager is 70 or is this something you only want to do one time? In general, you only want to do cataract surgery one time on, on a patient. But but so when, when we do cataract surgery, we actually, we take out 99% of the cataract and we leave behind part of the shell. So again, if you think about the M&M example, I'll open up the top of the M&M capsule. I'll take out the chocolate and the peanut, but I'll leave that M&M shell behind. We all do. I'll leave that M&M shell behind to put the new lens in that shell. So we'll take a four millimeter cataract and we'll put a one millimeter lens in to make the vision better. And that shell is clear on the day of surgery and it gradually becomes cloudy over time. So then in a few years after that, I tell patients, look, you have a 10% chance of needing a laser procedure in the office, different than LASIK, different than refractive surgery, but we sometimes need to perform a laser procedure on that residual tissue within two years, 10%, and then generally 20 to 50% within the next 10 years afterwards. So to get back to your example of the uh, of the young person who had cataract, 
sometimes you could, we typically, so the history of cataract surgery fascinates me. So there was this Dr. Susrati, who was um, an Indian ophthalmologist or Indian physician anyway, like, you know, 2000 years ago, who performed one of the first known cataract surgeries where they, he basically did what's called a couching procedure where you go in with an instrument and you push the cataract into the jelly of the eye, into the ball of the eye, which sounds, it's, which is traumatic. And they still do it in Africa in some places now today. But but you basically get this 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 cloudy M&M or cloudy cataract out of the visual access so that the patient can see better. There's a, there's a gentleman named Sir Harold Ridley who was an ophthalmologist in the 1940s. And he noticed that British airline, British fighter pilots were getting pieces of plastic in their eye from the canopy of the of the planes they were flying as fighter pilots, and they were not getting infections. And he hypothesized that he could put a lens in the eye to correct the vision after cataract surgery, like it was 1948. And that is, I'm sure there, there may have been other examples, but that is in the dark of night, he, had, he performed surgery in London in 1948, 1949. But that is how much ophthalmology has advanced over the last you know 2,000 years and even more so over the last 75. So uh, t- to go back to this example, you could have a very young, and I don't do cataract surgery on infants, but you could have a situation where you do cataract surgery on an infant and that you you don't put a lens in because because of sizing issues or whatever. You leave them what's called aphakic. So then they have to have thick glasses or thick contact lenses, et cetera. And then you may, at some other point in the future, go back and put a lens in, something called a secondary intraocular lens exchange. But those are those are rare instances you can also have a case where you have a perfect cataract surgery and five or 10 years later, unfortunately, you fall and you hit your eye at a certain angle and the lens displaces or the lens can move because of aging or, you know, the, um, uh, I'll give you another example. If you think about your lens as being a trampoline, you're a trampoline as you jump up and down, right? Sure. So imagine, imagine a cataract, actually, the natural lens being in the eye on a trampoline. So the strings of that trampoline can become damaged or age over time. So it can become more challenging. So these are rare instances, hopefully rare instances when you have to go back in. One of the risks of, of any cataract surgery, of any surgeries that you have infection or pain or decreased vision or loss of vision, or you have a need to return to the operating room for whatever reason. So that is, you know, that that is a risk that we that all cataract surgeons mention to patients. And there, there are numerous resources publicly available and on, on various websites. Well let's say my vision is decreasing. I'm starting to see halos around lights. I'm having difficulty driving at night. So my doctor and I have determined that it is time to do the cataract surgery. What's the prep like? And what does the surgery and the recuperation period involve? That's a great question. So, so, so if it's, if it, if it's a, you know, a quote unquote typical cataract, what will happen is that you meet with your surgeon and you're comfortable with the, with the surgeon. They do uh, preoperative measurements where they measure for the length of the eye from the front to the back. They measure, they measure the curvature and they do other measurements so that the lens they put in is appropriate for you know your history and your eye condition, et cetera. If you've had prior eye surgeries, it's very important to inform your ophthalmologist of those surgeries, such as retinal detachment surgery or retina surgery, or if you've had LASIK or PRK or some other refractive procedure because the calculations will change. So having a great history is is always, in any field of medicine, having a great history is, is generally the most important, uh, one of the most important parts of an exam. You, you may often um, be, depending on the state, be asked to go see your primary care doctor 
ophthalmologists like like patients to be cleared, certainly cleared by their primary care physician or you know the cardiologist, et cetera. And often patients, um, I've had surgeries canceled on me because a patient has newly diagnosed heart condition, atrial fibrillation, you know, et cetera, some other issue where they have multiple morbidities. So that actually makes me feel good that the patient got good care and then they and we discovered something that can help them medically. And then we can we can address their their cataracts after um you know a few weeks or a few months after they're stabilized. It depends on the surgeon, but some surgeons, I, I personally like patients to take start taking their drops a day or two before surgery. That can include an antibiotic, a steroid drop, a non-steroidal drop. Uh, generally, patients will be taking those drops for a few weeks after surgery. There are some surgeons who like to inject, who, who like to put antibiotics and steroids either in the eye or around the eye at the time of surgery. That can decrease the dependence of taking drops. Patients are generally seen the same day for postoperative care or the next day. They're generally seen you know, either a week or a few weeks later between surgeries. In the United States, anyway, it's, it's predominantly that we do one eye at a time. In some parts of the world, they are doing something called simultaneous cataract surgery, where both eyes are being done on the same day. Uh, that's not common. I, I wouldn't have that in my eye because I think that the results of one eye can help to inform the surgeon for the uh, precision of the calculations in the second eye. But, you know, the postoperative care for a typical patient, I think that, you know, after a few weeks, you'll see your surgeon again. If you need glasses, you know, you'll be checked for glasses. There, We could go into the technologies of cataract surgery where we are making patients less dependent depending on what their baseline condition is and if they're interested in something called premium lens technologies. So that's that's exactly what I want to talk about. Sure. Okay, first of all though, back to the surgery. You're awake during the surgery. Is it uncomfortable? Well, typically you are awake. I mean, so so again, it, um so I use drops around the eye, in the eye to make make the ocular surface numb. And I have a I, I have an anesthesia team with me and they, you know, they give patients medications to make them comfortable. It's sort of uh Helps to it actually helps to resolve the the memory of the procedure itself. You know, I've I've operated on patients who have dementia. I've operated on patients who, are, who have you know mental retardation. Those patients may may be have cataract surgery under general anesthesia, mm-hmm. and I think mm-hmm. that that's safer for those patients. So I think that it it generally is something called monitored anesthesia care, where it's you know you you have it's, you. It's called topical surgery where you put drops in. Some surgeons will inject anesthesia under the eye, you know, in the in the ocular socket, but behind the eye, and that's called a retrobulbar uh, injection. I haven't done that in you know twenty plus years. Uh, as again, as, as as we've advanced as a profession, uh, we've become less invasive as much as possible. But let's get on to your questions about the different lenses. Well, I rarely wear my contacts anymore because I just see better with my glasses and I have some eye issues. So with these premium lenses, would I possibly be a candidate for no glasses after cataract surgery? That's a great question. And I get called once a week from a family friend around the world <laughs> who, who asked me that same question, including my, you know, my best friends from childhood who asked me about their in-laws. Ravi, could you could you talk to their in-laws? It actually gets very frustrating for me it gets frustrating for surgeons because we want to know everything. And we, and, and, and really, really, we want to know a lot of it depends on what I mentioned earlier is what is the, what is the health of the overall ocular system? Got and it. we have to think about the system. Is the cornea clear? Is there any dryness? 
Is the pupil clear? Is there any vitreous issues? Are there any retina issues? So for example, a perfect, I tell my patients who have diabetes, I said, I can do a perfect cataract surgery on you. And there is an X number of percent risk that you'll have delayed healing or the retina will swell after a perfect cataract surgery. Because we know that for patients who have diabetes or something called epiretinal membranes or something called macular degeneration, et cetera, or they have increased morbidity after a perfect cataract surgery. So without knowing your family history risk of various conditions, including macular degeneration, glaucoma, cornea issues, et cetera, it's difficult to answer that question. Now, so, and plus we'd wanna know if you were farsighted or nearsighted, if you've had any refractive surgery procedures, if you're on other medications, and you know if you if you if if you were like, hey, I was, I just had some basic dryness with my contact lenses, that could just be that you weren't fitted properly for contact lenses. So you 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 could still be a great candidate for any procedure. Uh, there are some patients who I'll give you an example. There are patients who have extreme prescriptions in their glasses, either they're very farsighted or they're very nearsighted, but they don't have a cataract. You can do LASIK procedures on those patients, or you can actually do cataract surgery without the cataract. And that's called a refractive lens exchange, RLE. And so that's for patients who may not qualify for a refractive surgery procedure, who don't have a cataract, but they want the same steps of a cataract surgery with the same premium results, but they're in their 30s or 40s or 50s. And that can often be a very good option for those patients. So Cataract surgery and you know lens-based surgery very much has become an individualized protocol. So there is, there is no you know you you can't go to Chat GPT and uh, and get your answer. You really have to go. Uh, it really is individualized to the patient. So bottom line, have a good relationship with your cataract surgeon or your ophthalmologist and move from there. Well, I'm keeping my fingers tightly crossed that I'm a good candidate. Any information for the people out there that have dry eyes. Does that make the surgery any different, the prep, the recuperation? That's a great question. So so, so as I as I mentioned earlier, when, when you meet your surgeon, you have something called preoperative measurements. We want to measure the length of the eye and the curvature of the eye and do something called a corneal map often and do measurements of your, of your retina uh, possibly. So many of those measurements depend on a good tear film. So sometimes you'll have the situation where a patient comes in, and especially patients who have worn contact lenses for whether they're soft or hard, the surgeon may delay the preoperative measurements and say, you know what, you've been wearing contact lenses for 20 years. I'm meeting you for the first time. Do me a favor. Get out of your contact lenses, he or she might say to you. Start using these artificial tears or other regimen for treat your dryness. Let's take these measurements again in a month or two because... The data we get in now will affect the results we get later. So most of, you know, I, I just came back from the uh, from the Berkshire Hathaway meeting in Omaha, Nebraska, and this is the third time I've attended. The first time I got up at three o'clock in the morning, I stood in line to listen to Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger talk about, you know, value investing and, and you know, Berkshire Hathaway, et cetera. But, but it's, it's also, they just give life lessons about life and most ophthalmologists that I know are long-term thinkers. I'm interested in a patient's visual acuity 20 years from now, the cataract surgery I'll perform today. And I'll be able to see, you know, it's called the, you know, sort of the, the signature of the surgeon. You can sort of see in the lens, in, in the remnants of the lens in the cornea, many years after surgery. So it's not something I, I recommend rushing into, 
for a patient unless there's an emergent issue like so they have multiple other comorbidities but but typically it is the type of outpatient elective surgery in a typical fashion where the patient would benefit from reflection and looking at their options you know watching videos that are online you know youtube videos or various websites to learn about the procedure and to learn about their options because they they are making a you know an important decision on on their visual quality really for the rest of their life do you have a website that you recommend where folks can go for more information sure the american academy of ophthalmology has a great website called get eye smart and if you just go to aao.org and just type in iSmart. It used to be getismart.org. That might still point to the to the academy site, but they are patient friendly vignettes. You know, you know, short videos that will answer those questions. Or they're you know they're Q and As written up for patients, and uh, you can sort of get your get great information that is vetted by committees of ophthalmologists to make sure it's accurate. I love a website called iWiki, which is also created by the American Academy of Ophthalmology because that has an entire editorial board and the writers and they're editing this information. And sometimes if I have an unusual case, I'll go to iWiki uh, to sort of get a primer on uh, or get, get a refresher on these conditions. So I'm sure between those between those various sites, those are the sites I'd, I'd send a relative to to go to, to learn about cataracts. Okay, thank you. I'll put those in the show notes. Two more questions. I know that you said the premium lenses are very individualized, and that's something that patients have to speak with their physicians about. But it seems like everyone I've talked to after cataract surgery, they just rave about how much better they see. Some have lost their reading glasses. Some don't have to wear distance glasses anymore. Is that typical? Pam, that's a great question. I I, I think that that is the goal for surgery. Some patients, we have to be honest, some patients will not have that ability to see what you're describing. So for example, somebody could have something called a lazy eye from childhood where their eye turned in or turned out or they had trauma or they have a scar, et cetera. So they might think that I'm going to see 2020 after cataract surgery and they're not going to because that, that York processing facility that I mentioned, the film in the eye or the processing ability, et cetera, is damaged unrelated to the cataract and unrelated to the lens. So you have to have reasonable expectations. Some patients, so I think that, again, I think it, it is individualized to the patient. I think that is the goal for patients and, and the goal goal for um, the goal for us. And I'll, and I'll tell you everything, I'll tell you something that gave me a jump back moment. I had a patient who was basically blind in the eye. They could only see the light that was shown to them. They couldn't see your hand. They could only see light. And they had a, a condition called retinitis pigmentosa which very famous people have, but but it can cause tunnel vision where eventually over the course of your life, you only see as if it's in a tunnel. And another surgeon, great surgeon in the community said, you know what, I'm not operating on this patient because they have limited to no potential in that eye. The retina specialist who I work with at the Will's Eye Hospital said, you know, Ravi, I need you to do cataract surgery because I need to be able to see the retina in order to better assess the retinitis pigmentosa. I had zero expectations that this patient was going to see better, but I did the surgery hoping that the retina surgeon can get a better view. One week or two weeks or one month after surgery, the patient still couldn't see better. And they thought they would, even though I told them for hours that they were not going to see better. Three or four months later, they could see the big E. Oh, oh, that's a great story. I could not believe it to the point where and I'll be honest, I got up, I stood up, went out to the room to, 
to figure out which tech I should yell at for recording the wrong visual acuity. I checked the vision myself. The patient was happy as a clam and could actually see the big E. So that taught me a life lesson that, you know, sometimes you do have to be the doctor and sometimes we do need to say, you know what, there may be, there, there's power to prayer, but, we, we, you know, there, there, there may be the situation where that patient who went from not being able to see light or barely being able to see light to going to, to the seeing the big E is an exponential it's called logarithmic, an exponential improvement in their vision. And, you know, they, you know, they could, they could walk safer, you know, they, they were being, you know, and they could, might be able to see the large images on a TV. So I think that that is the, um, the privilege that I have is, is to be a member, is to be an ophthalmologist and to share the mission of protecting sight and empowering lives with ophthalmologists, not only in the United States, but around the world. How long do women have to wait after cataract surgery to wear eye makeup again? <laughs> I think that's another great question. Again, it depends on your dryness and your allergy issues. I think you should ask your ophthalmologist locally for that. Couple weeks, I would imagine something. We, we just need to be prepared. It sounds like. Well, I'll tell you one thing. I tell patients is that, and, and I'm, I'm a stickler for this. One, one thing I tell patients is that please don't swim for two or three weeks after surgery because there could be like you know weird bacteria sure. and in swimming pools. So you bring up a very good point though, because I, I think that that is a perfect example of where the cataract surgeon needs to be attuned to the individualized patient. Because there are patients who, who will be very frustrated. They ask for distance vision. Doc, I want to be able to drive, 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 and you know watch TV. And they were so used to being able to put their makeup on without glasses because they were a minus two. They were nearsighted. If you don't have that conversation beforehand, that can be very frustrating for the patient after surgery, not only for the patient, but also for the, uh, for the physician. Dr. Gohl, I always like to ask my guests what one new thing they've done or discovered lately, no matter how big or how small. Do you have something to share with us? Absolutely, Pam. I'm, oh, so, good. So we are, we are three years since March of 2020 when the country shut down, the world shut down because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And all the surgery centers were, were closed. Ophthalmologists were frustrated. The whole world was frustrated. I was spending an hour or two a day watching mindless YouTube videos about nothing at all. And in June, of, <laughs> in June of 2020, I made a resolution that I was going to do four things every day. I watched one cataract surgery online every day. I read a chapter in a book, any book every day, just a chapter. I watched a TED Talk, which is free. You have the most amazing authors give a 15 or 20 minute TED Talk and they tell you more in that TED talk than they did in the book that they wrote. And I read an, an article, uh, you know, in within within my field. And I found that by having the discipline of every day doing that, I did it for six hundred days till February of twenty two, and then I burned out. But my point is, is that there are so many free resources that are available to you, and I commend you for your blog because I see how. To meet new people, you're going and you're you're having great discussions with folks in your community and really around the country to learn from other individuals. And I think that's part of the reason why I went to Berkshire Hathaway this weekend for the to Omaha, just to meet folks who have sort of have that mindset of I want to learn more. I want to learn something new every day. And I think that's been one of the hidden benefits of uh, of the last few years. Well, thank you for that. And thank you so much 
for your expertise and your guidance. You've been very helpful to me, and I know you've been very helpful to all the listeners out there as well. Thank you very much for coming on Who I Met Today. Thank you for the opportunity. And that's it for today's show. Thanks to Dr. Gold for sharing his knowledge and experience. If you enjoyed this episode, and I hope you did, I hope you'll listen to other episodes and spread the word about this new show. A huge thank you to Brian at Top Tier Audio for his advice and guidance. And thanks to you for tuning in. And remember, I'd love to hear from you if you discover a fun new thing. My email is pam at whoimettoday.com.